Welcome to the Peaceful Life Podcast. This is your host, Laura, coming to you from a cottage in the woods in the peaceful mountains of California. This is the first of a two-part episode that I'm presenting on peace and the police. You might not know this, but the overall umbrella term for every law enforcement officer on the local, county, or state level is peace officer. They are entrusted with keeping the peace. But as you do know, there's been a lot of unrest lately in the media about police officers, aggression, and undue force, specifically on people of color. In this first episode, I speak with Raven Xavier, a musician and host of his own podcast, The Rave X Show. In next week's episode, I'll speak with Sergeant Kaisha Zebley, who serves in a large urban police force. I'm so grateful to both Reeve and Kaisha for lending their voices to this important issue. So here's my first conversation about peace and the police. Rave X is a podcaster from Boston. You heard me mention his show in my episode called Podcasts I Love because I'm a huge fan. He tells stories about his life and he's got such a way with words that the show is such a delight. I've invited Rave to have a conversation on this episode because he related some stories on his show about his run-ins with the police. So I thought it would be important to get his perspective. So welcome, Rave, to the Peaceful Life Podcast. Hey, Laura. Thanks to uh, thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. I'm a huge fan, and it's good to be here. Well, thank you. So give my audience a little background on Rave X and how and why you started your own podcast. You know, huge fan of podcasts like everyone is, and I kind of figured I could probably do that. People always used to tell me I've got a lot to say and I should write these things down. And then I thought, well, let me just do a podcast and see what happens. Um, I'm a musician, so I'm used to recording and using the equipment. And one day I just heated up the mic and started talking and it caught on. You know, it's not as big as I would hope it to be, but it's getting there. People like it. And I could totally see you being on stage and telling your stories as a stand-up routine. <laughs> I know. I know. It's, it's, it's funny. It's really, it's incredibly important too. Well, you know, I mean, there were so many podcasts out there and it was like, well, what should I do? Should I talk about uh, movies? Should I talk about this? Should I talk about that? But there's like the market's flooded with that. And I thought, well, what's the one thing that I have that no one else has? And then you get to your own life experiences. So some of the early shows were reviews and, you know, movie reviews and talking about tech. And then I just started thinking, I remember the time this happened. I remember the time that happened and I was in Istanbul and now let me just talk about that. And that's when it kind of came easy and became kind of more of a organic thing than trying to talk about stuff I wasn't really versed about, you know. So that kind of brings us to our topic, which is peace in the police. And um, on your show, you've had several stories. One in particular, I'd like you to retell for my listeners about coming home from work uh, you were on your way home from work, I guess, and you encountered a police officer at the bus stop. Is that right? Uh, yeah, you know, the quality wasn't that great back then. I was still getting the mics ready. That, you know, I was thinking about that, getting ready for this interview and uh, you know, the topic we're talking about. That was like the craziest thing in the world, Laura, because I could see if I was kind of up to no good, but I was in a really good neighborhood. 
And uh, literally, I, I was away from everyone else at the bus stop. I was leaning with my back against the wall. And a cop went past me on a bike. And then uh, he went past me again. And then the third time, he just stopped right in front of me. And I had my back against the wall. And he's in front of me on his bike. And I got my headphones blasting something. And he's just, I can see his mouth, you know, moving. So I hit pause. And I said, I'm sorry, what? And he's like, hey, how you doing, buddy? And I'm like, oh, God, are we... Are we really gonna do this right here, right now, man? And he's like, uh, "Hey, just wanted to stop off, see how you were doing." And I'm like, "Oh my god, it just—it's it, the most annoying thing in the world. It's happened to me before, so I kind of knew what I was in for." Mm-hmm. And it's one of these things where I first started thinking, "Okay, let me do whatever I have to do to not get shot in the face." I think I mentioned that in my show. Unfortunately, it's like a real thing, you know. It's like it wasn't even dark out; it wasn't nighttime, you know. And he just starts asking me questions like, "So where are you going?" And I'm like, where are you going? You know, <laughs> oh, you come back from work? I'm like, I, I, I work around the corner, man. And he's like, oh, okay. And I reached, this was the scary part. I reached back just to show him my work ID. When I did, he put his hand down and he put his thumb on the handle of his nine millimeter. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, to me, I'm like, I can't believe I'm going through this right now. This is like, I've heard about it on the news. It's happened before. It hasn't happened for a while. You know, I'm, I'm older now. And uh, he just put his thumb on his nine millimeter. And I'm like, okay, let me remember what I'm, what I'm in right now. And I showed him my work ID and he asked me my name. And I he can't remember if I told him my name or not. And he told me his name and he shook my hand and he said, uh, let me tell you why I uh, stopped over here, buddy. And I said, okay. And he said, your posture. And I said, my, 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 my posture? And he goes, yeah. Yeah. He goes, you look like you're ready for something or something to that effect. I'm like, well, what am I ready for? I'm trying to go home. And he's like, yeah, just the way you're standing, man, you're looking around, you know, and I said, let me, let me stop and talk to that guy. And I said, all right, well, we're, we're talking. And he goes, yeah, uh, you ever serve any time in the military? And I'm just like, no. And he goes, okay, well, you got really good posture. And I was like, yeah, good posture is important. What, what are we doing here right now? Like, what's going on? And, you know, it, it gets so embarrassing because as people are walking by, mm-hmm. they're looking at me like, what did this guy do? And I'm like, I didn't do nothing. I'm trying to go home. Right. And you said that there were other people at the bus stop, too. They were white. Uh, yeah, there, there was like four white people. There was an Asian woman there. But I was definitely the darkest guy at the bus stop. And like I said, I'm standing kind of behind the bus stop, just kind of, you know, enjoying myself and enjoying the nice, the nice weather. And, um, yeah, he just asked me a couple of questions. And then he leans in and he goes, you got any weapons on you? Oh, my God, Laura. I'm just like. With, with everything that's in the news, Black Lives Matter, all this stuff, like, bro, you're really going to do this right now. You know what I mean? Like, it was, it was just, so, and I, I looked, I said, no, I don't have any weapons on me. And he's like, oh, okay. All right. Just, just making sure you're doing okay. And I'm like, all right, man, whatever. Just go on about your day. And he told me his name and he shook my hand. I think I mentioned his name on the show. Yeah. And then he, did. He, he biked off. And like, I wasn't even angry at first, but then when the bus came, I looked at everyone else and they're looking at me like I'm some criminal. And I'm like, this is like, this is like the worst thing in the world. You know what I mean? Like, it's horrible. I mean, I can imagine the mixture of emotions, anger and sadness and fear. And yet you have to be so careful not to trigger this man, you know, because the burden is on you, which is incredibly unfair. I almost messed up, you know, like when... I, I, and this is how quick it can happen, you know, and that there are a lot of people this has happened to and they weren't as lucky. We see it all the time. Like, you know, I saw a video where a guy said, Hey, look, I'm licensed to carry. I'm going to reach back and just give you my ID to show you. And the cop says, okay, get your ID. 
he pulls out his ID, the cop shoots him. Like, even when you do what they say, there's still a chance you might get shot. And I kind of forgot. Like, for me, it was like, let me just show him my work ID. I work at a big building in Boston. Everyone knows where it is. And um, when he slowly reached down and put his thumb on his gun, I'm like, I can't. I, I, I just started to think about what are they going to tell my, my mother? Like, yeah. well, he reached for his ID and we shot him. Like, like yeah. come on now. It's so frightening. You know, and you know, I'm white. And although I grew up. Really? <laughs> yeah. And although I, I grew up in a very diverse neighborhood, but the first time I even realized that people of color were treated differently by the police, I was like in my 20s. I was like living in my own little white bubble, you know? And I went to lunch with a coworker and he was driving and he suddenly got all nervous. And I'm like, what's going on? And he said, well, there's a cop behind us. And I was all like, well, you've done nothing wrong, you know? And he said, Laura, you don't understand. I'm a black man. Yeah. And he told me all about driving while black and that if he was stopped, he had to keep his hands in sight and ask permission to reach for his license and registration. And of course, little naive me, I'm like, no way, this can't be right, blah, blah, blah. But I think for the people of privilege, we just don't understand that there's a difference. We weren't aware of it, you know, until maybe, and it's not that it hasn't been happening. Of course it's been happening. Right. But it's just come into the limelight more nowadays. Yeah. You know, where you grow up and where you live has a huge effect on everything. It's such a huge country and I've been lucky enough to live in different places. And I lived in Jacksonville, Florida, and that was the first time I was really like, wow, this is, this is crazy. I didn't know, you know, I was just kind of in Boston, in, in the Boston area. And I was at a bar uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, trying to make friends. I was new in town. And I'm um, talking to this guy. We're about to shoot pool. And he literally said to me, hey, man, I'm trying to figure out what exactly you are. Are you black or are you one of Osama bin Laden's boys? Because you look like you could be like a Muslim. And I went like, bro, you know what? Like, let's just shoot pool. You want to be? I'll buy you a beer. He's like, yeah, I'm just asking. I just want to know what you are. And I go, so you know what category you can put me in to hate me? Like, why would I even? <laughs> you know, growing up in such a diverse area that I've, that I've grown up in, you know, I didn't know anything was different. It's kind of the reverse of what you're saying. Like, there was always people all around my house, you know, like my mom had white friends, black friends, Hispanic friends, gay friends. Race was never talked about. And it was such an interesting thing. I didn't realize kind of what my mom was doing till I got older, where there was no talk of race. It was just the house was open. We had friends, you know, people would come over. But when I moved around the country, you definitely, you know, you, you hear that N-word and hearing that N-word from someone with like a Southern accent, yeah. that was like the worst. I, I couldn't even believe, like I had never heard that stuff before. <clears throat> right, right. And that's when I realized, oh, the, the, the country's different. It depends on where you're at. Sometimes the racism is much more open and other times it's kind of behind closed doors, you know. I didn't experience a lot of straight up racism in Boston until I was older. And then of course, you know, living in Florida, you kind of get some of that, you know. Right. And you know, I grew up in Chicago and then I moved to LA. So in LA during the riots and everything. But then when I moved to the mountains, that was like over a little over six years ago, I didn't realize how different it was up here. <laughs> Exactly. I didn't think about that before I even moved. Again, it's kind of my naivete. And within the first week of living up here, my daughter is stopped by a cop. This is sheriff. 
because we're unincorporated. And, you know, she came home shaking and I was like, I asked her what happened, what happened? And she's like, I don't think I did anything wrong. And she, she told me the story. She said, he stopped her and, and she said, what did I do? What happened? And he said, well, you took that left back there a little too sharply. And she's Hispanic. My daughter's a person of color. Yeah. And she's like, is taking a left a little too sharply against the law? Like, you know, she has a mouth on her. So I'm like, I'm shaking as she's telling me this because I'm like, uh uh-oh. And and at first she's gorgeous. So I said, maybe he liked you. Maybe he thought, oh, here's a pretty girl. I'm going to stop her. And, you know, and she's like, no, mom, it was not like that. I, I felt it was very aggressive. He was an old dude. He wasn't flirting with me. And then he started saying, what's your business in town? Oh, my God. Very similar to yours. Like, what's, what's my business in town? Like, I'm driving on the street. I know. And she's like, well, I went to the grocery store and I'm bringing my mom groceries. She just moved here. And he's like, well, what does your mom do? Oh, my God. Yeah. And she's like, she didn't understand because she, she, she had never been stopped before. She didn't just get stopped in LA. So she's telling me this. And then we both slowly realized that probably because she was a person of color and it was, it was kind of scary. Yeah. You know what? Um, I've had relatives, you know, I got, I got four aunts and uh, one of my aunt got arrested on New Year's Eve because uh, she was trying to catch the train and a cop came over and wanted to know like what she was doing or started questioning her. And my aunt, like, as you said, my aunt, I love it to death, but she's got a mouth. She does not know how to, you know, just be quiet and answer the questions. So she's at the train station. The cops start, you know, what are you doing? Where are you going? She's tall, black woman, beautiful, long dreads down her back. And uh, she thought she was, uh, you know, getting, getting profiled, which she probably was. And she told the cop exactly what she thought. And then the cop said, calm down. Of course, she said, don't you tell me to calm down. Turns out three more cops showed up and she spent the night in jail. Oh. So... With, with these situations, I think that as difficult as it is and as painful as it is and scary as it is, unfortunately, the best way out is just to answer the questions and just take it minute by minute because you don't know what's coming really. You know what I mean? Like I know from, from myself, my aunt, my friends, you know, I've had roommates that have been stopped by the cops for no reason. Like you, you, you kind of rolled through that stop sign and my roommate was like, no, I didn't. He's like, yes, you did. I always tell my brothers. Yo, just keep your mouth shut and just answer the questions. Not because I think the cop's right, but because I want you to come home. You know what I mean? So like, trust me, the the, the way you fight this, you got to fight it in court because you're not going to win is the thing. You know, like we think if a person just stopped another person on the street, you know, two strangers and just said, hey, where you going? I don't ask me what the F I'm going, where you going? You can do that. You know, if someone gets too close to you, someone gets up in your face, you can shove them. Get away from me. Yeah. The second a cop gets in your your face, if you shove them, now you've given them that in and that's all they need. Now, now they've got you on resistance. Right. You know, and they go, come here, put your hand behind your back. And everyone tries to do, unfortunately, I've been handcuffed. (laughs) The thing you've got to do is you just have to let them put your hands behind your back and cuff you because the second you fight, you will get maced, tased, beaten, and or shot, you know? And I think that that's that's the way to kind of handle this is just bite your tongue, deal with this, make it home, get a lawyer if you need to, and fight it in the courtroom. And you had a really interesting theory about this particular type of police officer. Can you talk about that? Yeah, you know, and, and this is from working in security and just knowing people 
who have been in the military and they go off to uh, you know Afghanistan or wherever they go where they're getting shot at and there's uh, improvised explosive devices every couple of feet and they're on like a heightened level that I don't think we can understand because death can come from anywhere. And a lot of cops come back to town. I mean, sorry, a lot of soldiers come back to town. They get jobs as cops. It's impossible to fully take the war zone out of the man, even though you've taken the man out of the war zone. So they're all amped up and ready to go. And I've experienced that. You know, I've heard them talking about, well, we were over there and they shot at us. We had it out. We returned fire. And I'm like, all right, man, but when you're in the city, you can't just do that to people. It's a whole different thing here now. And maybe there aren't enough services. Maybe they don't take that into consideration. Maybe they think, well, he's a corporal in the military. He'd be a great cop. But a lot of these cops are super amped up and aggressive. And the other part you were talking about, you know, I experienced firsthand, buddy of mine, his dad was super racist. And I didn't know it because we're just, you know, me and him, we were like 14. And we're hanging out, you know, in the living room, whatever. And we're talking. And he said to me, I never forget this, man. This is probably the first experience with uh, any type of racial stuff he said to me he said uh you know rave i usually don't like colored people and i said oh yeah i thought he was joking i thought he was doing a bit right and he literally said to me but as far as colored people go you're one of the good ones oh god and let me tell you how messed up this was lord in my 14 year head i thought yay i'm one of the good ones i can't, I can't even, you know it, it really wasn't until i was way older that i was like yo this dude you know now if his son growing up with that goes off to be a cop. Well, his dad's been saying his whole life, black folk are bad. Well, now this dude becomes a cop. He's got a gun and a nightstick. His grandfather probably told him black folk were bad. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to go out gunning for people of color. But if he gets into a conflict, he's already made the decision that this colored person is bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a generalization. And, you know, in my episode about bullying, I don't know if you listen to it with Christopher Grunland, another podcaster. He coined the term trickle-down hatred. In your opinion, do you feel that it's worse now in the Trump era, or is it, is it better because it's being exposed? I, I think that that's a, uh, that's a tough question. I'm going to go back before Trump to Obama. And you know, a lot of people were kind of saying like, okay, th- this is it. We've made it. We're here. We've arrived. We've got to you know, people always said black president, you know, he's, he's, he's both, he's half white, he's half black, but you know, a person of color was, was president for eight years. And I, I always thought that we should just make Obama president forever. We should just knock on his door and be like, Hey, look, we need you back. I'm sorry. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah, we're, we're recruiting you back. And, Please. And, yeah. Like you're coming back. I'm sorry. I, I think that it got a lot of people talking. I think that people, I think that black people had maybe an unrealistic expectation on what a black president can and can't do. You know, I heard a lot of people saying, oh, everything's going to be fine now. It's just such a huge problem. There's so many people in the country. It's such a huge country that even having a person of color in the White House didn't seem to make that big of a difference to me. It was great. You know, when I saw him dancing at the ball, the inaugural ball with Michelle Obama, I was like, these look like people I was in the house with. Like Michelle Obama looks like my Aunt Sandra. This is amazing. This is great. So it, it gave us a sense of like pride that had never been seen before. Where you can you can stand up a little bit straighter and go like, we're in the White House now. This is great. Maybe people will look at me different. And at the end of the day, unfortunately, Laura, I, I don't think it made that big of a difference, at least where I was from. I didn't get any special treatment if I was stopped by a cop. They were still like, yeah, you're guilty. Right. How do you think that this can be fixed? I mean, I know you're just a guy, 
And you're not the president. Just a guy. If you were the president or if you were running, I'd vote for you. Thank you. How would you fix this? What do you think is the solution? Is there a solution to the police problem? Is it about education? This is such a, uh, I mean, you know, we, we could talk for hours and still only hit the tip of the iceberg. So um, I think that there's a part of this that is very unpopular to talk about. And, you know, I might get a bunch of crap on Facebook for it. That's okay. I can take it. Um, you know, I was doing some research and I've heard these numbers before. African-Americans are people who identify as African-Americans. It's like 14 to 15%. Yeah. When you're looking at crimes committed that are, that are called in and convictions uh, from the National Crime Victimization Survey or the National Incident-Based Reporting System, it's like that, that 14%, and actually it's more like seven because it's mostly men, it, they're responsible for a huge number of, of criminal convictions, like not just we stopped a black guy, whatever, but it's like 50 to 58%. And cops get these numbers, they get these statistics, and even the best cop, their job is to stop crime. Mm. You know, so if they're getting numbers that say eight out of 10 of the crimes that happened last night were people of color, it's impossible to get that out of their head. You know what I mean? And like we said, people of color, if you're a black dude, you're kind of already guilty. You know, it's like you show me the man, I'll show you the crime. And I think that, you know, once a cop is a cop for a long time, of course, they're going to get run down and they're going to get a hair trigger literally and figuratively. And so they start looking at every person that fits that description that they've got in their head. I think that if we really want to stop it, if, if we change the narrative, you know, like we, we work on family and education in the black community, you know, it, it's something like if you're a black kid, there's like a 70% chance you'll grow up without a dad. I didn't know my dad. I met my dad like twice. You know, all of my friends in, in the projects over in, uh, in Boston no one really had a dad in the house. Like if someone had a dad in the house, we were like, oh, look at this guy. He knows his dad, you know? And it's a huge thing. Like if you have a dad there to kind of set you straight, you know, maybe you end up a different way and you don't become part of these uh, statistics. You know what I mean? Like I've been broke. I've never stolen a car or robbed a liquor store, but there are people out there that are really broke. You know, maybe they got kids, they got mothers at home, whatever. They go out, they rob a liquor store, they become a, a statistic. And that just furthers the thing. So if it gets to the point where people of color aren't committing, you know, it's never going to be zero, but if that's not the person that a cop is looking for, we change the entire narrative. You know what I mean? And then it's like, you get treated with respect. You know, I don't think the cops treat a dude, a white guy in a three piece suit, the way Mr. Crooked officer uh, treated me coming home from work. I just don't think that happened. Right. But then on the other hand, don't you think it all has to do with accountability as well? Like if some of these police officers were actually indicted and found guilty of these crimes, I mean, like 90% of them are acquitted. It is absolutely ridiculous. Because historically, Philando Castile, officer acquitted. Terrence Crutcher, officer found not guilty. No charges for Alton Sterling, Walter Scott. You know, it's like Walter Scott, that, that was the one cop that was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Sandra Bland, Freddie. I mean, it, the list goes on and on where they're acquitted or they're just the charges are dropped. And if they feel like there's no accountability, then the behavior will continue, don't you think? I, I think you're absolutely right. And we, we see I mean, now we've got, you know, body cams. And, and uh, you know, dashboard cameras, we have the dashboard cameras for a while. And you see these things where you see there was one that happened, I think a guy, I can't remember his name. But, you know, it's unfortunate that we can't remember some of these names because it happens so much. It just becomes like, 
I think he was selling CDs in a park and someone filmed it through a fence. Mm-hmm. And the guy, he, you know, he, I guess he told the black dude, all right, now go ahead. Shot the dude in the back. Like, how are you going to shoot someone in the back, dude? And then I can't remember exactly what happened with that, but I would not be shocked to find out. They said, uh, acquitted of all charges. How do you shoot someone in the back? Right. Uh, you shoot a black dude in the back and you're acquitted of all charges. You're On absolutely video. right. On video. On too. video. Yeah. It wasn't even like hearsay, like I saw a cop shoot a dude, like here's the video, and they go, no, you're free to go. You're free to go. You know, it, it is absolutely insane. And you're right. If they knew that some bad stuff was going to happen, you're going to get a, a prosecutor, you're going to go to jail, that would make them think twice. But the other thing is, too, that we have to talk about, it, it's, a, it's a tough thing. Cops want to go home at the end of the night. And like I said, I've worked with a lot of cops. Not all cops are bad. Right. Not all cops are racist. Absolutely. At the end of the day... A cop wants to go home and this, you know, these horrible things where someone just reaches back to their ID or their cell phone because they want to film it. Cop thinks it's a gun. They're kind of trained to shoot first and they're always trained to shoot to stop. You know, they don't shoot you in the leg, let you bleed out. They're going to unload their clip on you. And it's, um, yeah, it's just a horrible thing. Yeah, I, I worked closely with cops when I was writing. And um, one thing the officer told me is... You know, if you're in a situation like that, they're taught to think it's him or me, it's him or me, it's him or me. Exactly. And so that's what's going through their heads too. And they're, they're human. You know, they've got children. Exactly. Like said, they have a family to go home to as well. Exactly. And I think that, you know, it, it gets so easy, especially when something like this that we're talking about, which is just the most horrible thing in the world, just to sort of vilify everybody and not see them as a, as a human being. And yeah, there was one video, cop told the guy, pull him in the gas station. Black dude pulled into the gas station. He said, I'm going to get my license now. Cop said, sure. He reached his license. Cop shot him like six times. And the thing is, you, you hear the cop on video. He's freaking out too. This wasn't, you know, he didn't shoot a black dude and then go, all right, that was awesome. He's going, oh my God, oh my God. Why did you, why did you? this cop's life kind of in a sense is over as well. I don't think he killed the dude in the gas station. I believe he lived. But this guy has to deal with that for the rest of his life. He's probably going to be unhirable. You know, a lot, there are cops that are super amped up and aggressive, and they, they want to pull that trigger. You know, they, they're, they're waiting for it. Give me a reason. I had a cop say to me one time, give me a reason. Oh my and I'm God. like, yo, this, this dude's serious. Like, he's serious. He wants me to give him a reason, and he will pull out his gun and shoot me. And then there are other cops that are new on the job. You don't know what type of day they're having. They're nervous. Maybe it's a lack of training. And even when the guy says, I'm just going to get my license registration. He says, okay. And then in his head, a switch gets thrown. And it's like we just said, come home to your family, shoot first, you know, and, and live to, to fight another day. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously the, the biggest question, what can we do to stop it? And I know in Boston, we just got the first black police commissioner and it was a huge deal. Everyone liked the previous police commissioner, but now we've got a black police commissioner who's walking around shaking people's hands. And it was such a it was such a big deal, you know. And I've seen this guy before, and uh, he's shaking people's hands. People are smiling, and you know, bad stuff could still go down. But now the police commission is black, so I'm sure he's going to be really doubling down on the sensitivity training. You know, don't pull your gun, maybe pull your taser. You know, and I think that that's a huge step. You know, diversifying the police force, right? Um, having people walk around. I don't really see cops walk around anymore like they used to. You don't even know their names. I used to know cops' names in the projects. Like they're beat. Yeah. Exactly. Like now they're like, they don't even want to get out the car. You know, like if you're going to film me, why would I get out the car? You know what I mean? 
And I think we can go back to that where you can have a cop say hi to you. Cops don't even say hi anymore. You know, they're just there when the, when the crap hits the fan. And sort of they've become. Yeah, without asking you if you're armed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I, I think that, you know, if we can get to a point where you kind of, you know, cops are looking at us as people and we're looking at them as people, that's the first thing, like before black, before I have a badge on. All right, we're all people. No one wants to get shot. Let's take it from there. Rave, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I really appreciate your voice. Oh my God, Laura is a pleasure. Yeah, keep doing what you're doing because your podcast is great. And they can find it on YouTube. That's correct. Ravex Music. Ravex Music on YouTube and also uh, bandcamp.com forward slash Ravex Music. Awesome. Have a wonderful and peaceful week, Rave. Thanks for doing this. Please come back next week for the second part of this important discussion when I speak with Sergeant Kaisha Zebley, a woman of color, serving to bridge this gap between police and the community they serve. This is Laura, and you've been listening to the Peaceful Life Podcast. Remember, we are all spectacular human beings, and we're all doing our best. Please treat each other with love and respect. Have a great week.